So this week, um, as we kind of move on a little bit, I, uh, I may have, no, I'm back there. Okay, good. This week, I, um, I thought we were going to be done talking about like trust and storms and faith and things, right? And then of course, this weekend happened, which, you know, the past 14 days have been wild. They've been wild because they've been beyond all the things that we can really explain and, and, I want you, there we go. The tragedy that we lived with and dealt with over this uh, past 14 days has been, um, well, it's been, it's been uh, almost unexplainable. And uh, I know that we've had highs and lows of emotions and we've dealt with the feeling of hopelessness and despair and thinking about children and people that have lost their lives to hearing great stories of the church in action and redemption and, 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 and all those kind of things rolled into one. It's hard to know what to do with all that. And last week I really talked about trust because I was really wrestling with this idea of trust and really more specifically the question of, God, do I trust you? I mean, really do I trust you? And what does that mean for me? What does it mean for me to say, God, I, I trust you, Right? And, and I was struggling because we talked about the, that picture of the disciples on the boat with Jesus and the storm's coming up and they're about to die and they look back and Jesus is sound asleep and they wake him up and they say, don't you care? We are about to drown. And I felt like there was part of my heart last week or so that wanted to shout that out to the Lord. God, don't you see what's going on here? Children are dying. Well, then, of course, you know, we get to this week and we're, we're faced with even more the reality of life and the challenges and struggles and hurts uh, of life, you know, and we, we learn of these things, and it's hard to know where to process them. But right after I preached this kind of message on trust and um, stuff like that last week, I was in line at Subway of all places uh, and uh, on Monday, and I overheard a conversation that I think that most of us have overheard at some point in time over the past eight days or so, or, or maybe even 14 days. And it, and it goes a little something like this. They were two strangers because uh, this lady was standing in line in front of me and this other guy came in right in front of me and they were just kind of waiting in line at Subway and, and they started talking. And, and, uh, and, and the guy basically started by saying, you know, can you believe what's happened down in Moore? And uh, she said, no, I mean, it's almost, it's almost unfathomable. Like, I, I can't imagine. He's like, what can you do? And she said, well, I don't know. What can you do, right? And he said, well, you can, I guess we just have faith, right? That was basically the whole conversation. It's a conversation that most of us have probably heard out. We've heard that term, right, uh, just have faith over and over again. In fact, on Friday night, um, we heard it as we kind of watched all these things unfold. The CEO of a really large company here and got on the news, and they were doing a little interview, and, and he just basically said, uh, I'm just at, we're asking all those in Oklahoma City to be resilient and have faith. And, and that same thing played out in my head. And as I was standing in line at Subway, I started thinking, well, am I going to get turkey or ham? But then I always think I'm going to get ham, but I never do. I always end up with turkey. But I don't know why I even act like I'm going to get ham. I never do. The lady that works there even knows I'm not going to get ham. But I was thinking, in the behind that turkey or ham thing, I always land on turkey, right? It's just a good philosophy. I always go with turkey. So anyway, I'm thinking to myself, what does that really mean? I mean, what does it really mean to just have faith. I mean, what, are, what are we saying to each other? As a culture, I get it because we're talking about some kind of perpetual optimism. Like just keep your head up. Like, you know, things are hard. So just, just have faith that it's sort of all going to work out. But in the back of my mind while I'm sitting there in the subway, I'm going work out for who? Like have faith in what? You're looking at people whose lives have just been completely devastated. 
What does it mean to have faith? And as a believer, more importantly, as a follower of Christ, what does it mean for me? You know, you hear stories uh, down in more of, a, of, the st- of one street where every house on this side of the street is completely untouched and every house on this side of the street is completely obliterated, right? So what does it mean for this family over here with their house still standing when someone says have faith versus what does it mean for this family who lost everything, right? What, is those, what, are those, what do we do with those questions? And so I was thinking about trust and I was thinking about faith and, and I understand what people are saying and I think it's important. Yeah, you know, don't, don't be sad, don't be downcast or whatever. But I started really thinking, Trip, what does it mean for me to really have faith? What does it mean? It can't just be some kind of optimism. Like I can't just walk around. If you had a chance to be down there, you can't just walk around and be like, this is all going to be okay. You're watching people sleeping in tents, having lost everything, and there's people that's fallen through the cracks. There's those that have insurance and will have their lives rebuilt, and then those that will never be the same, those that have lost loved ones and things. What does it mean to just have faith? Can I actually say that to someone, and what do I mean when I say it? So I was really wrestling with that set of questions. God, what does it mean to have faith in you? And so I thought what we do this morning is just explore that a little bit because I think, let let me put it this way, I deeply believe that there's something more than just an optimism, right, when it comes to thinking about the idea of faith. The, our culture will tell you that, you know, you've got to pull yourself up. We've got resiliency. You just have to get beyond, and, and, and it will work out. It will be okay. We will get past it. Um, but being a believer, there's something so much deeper there that I want to explore. And so this morning, we're going to look at that idea of faith and how that intersects with my trust in Christ. And what do I really have faith in? Because I deeply believe that faith is nothing, something that can't stand alone. Faith, when not attached to an object that we put it in, is just empty. There's, there's really nothing there. It's completely and totally void. From a New Testament perspective, the idea of faith is attached to something all the time. In fact, the very word pistuo, which is the Greek word for faith or trust or belief, is almost always exclusively attached to a preposition epi or ice, which means into or upon. So when we have faith or trust, The Greek New Testament way of constructing those out are that we have belief or trust into or on something. It doesn't stand alone. So to just simply have faith doesn't really exist in a biblical context. But to have faith into or upon something, there has to be an object by which our faith is put into. A thing, something. And for me as a believer, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean for me to truly have faith in in something bigger and something greater? And So we're going to explore that um, just a little bit. So... If you got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and flip to 2 Corinthians, um, and we're going to start there, um, and we'll pray and just kind of open it up, and then we'll, uh, I'll try and do this quickly since we're still doing communion. 2 Corinthians, what? Where do you want to be? You tell me. I actually don't remember, so how about we look at that up? It's a great question, Ginger. How about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4? This is a good a place. Chapter 4, verse 13, and we'll just look at those five um, Five verses, four, thirteen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that um, I thank you that you're bigger than all my questions. God, I thank you that, as we'll learn, you you are the object that we put our faith into. Um, that God, that this world is 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 full of things that we don't understand, and we know that there are families this morning even in the wake of the past few days that are still reeling, still struggling, still have lots of questions, and we don't take that lightly. But we gather here this morning, God, believing that there's something bigger um, and something deeper and something at play that is 
so much more wonderful than what we can explain. And so, Lord, help our understanding of trust and faith um, just be played out really well. And, uh, Lord, open our hearts to real questions and then demonstrate your power. And, Lord, and we ask this really in the name of the, the one that gives us life. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask God to, to maybe just reveal something about the nature of faith to your heart this morning. Take just a moment and, and pray for someone around you. Pray that God would move in them and that he would do something in their lives. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We love you deeply. We know that you're bigger than all that we um, can fathom or understand. God, we pray that you would reveal truth to us. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And God, we ask that you would do immeasurably more than we know and can understand. We ask this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen. All right. Did we we change batteries out there? Test, test, test. Good to go, good to go. All right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. so a couple of, uh, let me give you a couple of baselines that I want to start with before we dive into that text. Two, two things about faith that I just want to lay out there as, as baselines that, that are going to kind of feed into this text a little bit. Because this isn't a classic piece of text on faith. It's not like Hebrews 11 or whatever. I, I want to look at it a little bit differently. But I'll give you a couple of baselines. The first one is that faith is, is really always rooted in salvation. So, and this is coming from the perspective of followers of Christ. So stick with me. But faith is always rooted in salvation. It's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where faith really begins. It's where we see God being who God says he is. So Acts chapter 16, when uh, Paul and Silas are in, in prison, and they're singing hymns, and they're praising God, and it says that an earthquake came, and the, the jail doors literally were, sh- were shaken open, right? And Paul and Silas were in there just singing to God, and, and the jailer is just freaking out, because he knows if these prisoners escape, he's going to lose his life, and he, he runs there, and Paul and Silas are still in inside this prison, and they're singing to the Lord, and, and the jailer knows that something else is going on, he falls at their feet, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And their response is this, put your faith, right, into the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's the response to this jailer, which is pistuo epi, which basically means put all your belief into Christ. The idea being is that when we really begin to unpack the idea of faith, it has to be attached to something. And as followers of Christ, the picture is that we believe in a God who so deeply loved us that he sent his son to give us life, <clears throat> and that our faith is attached, is upon the person of Jesus Christ. And it's rooted in this idea of salvation, meaning that if I believe Jesus is who he said he is, then this world is not the end. That there is an eternal nature to who God is that is beyond my understanding and my imagination. And therefore, I know there is something bigger than what's transpiring here in this sort of temporary place. It's rooted in the eternal nature of who God is. For years, uh, I carried around my father's um, kind of program from his funeral in my suit pocket, like just for forever. I mean, my dad died in 97. It's been years and years. And, and I carried it around not to remind me, and I think I've said this before, that my, my dad was dead. I mean, I knew that every day. I mean, every single day I look at my children, I remember how much I want them, I wanted them to know him. But I carried it around to remind myself that God is eternal, that this world is, is not contained here. 
that there's a bigger picture, and that, that faith is really trusting in this sort of eternal nature of knowing Christ, that there's something so much bigger. And that's the sort of the first premise at play for believers, that this world, as we're going to see in these verses, is not the end, that there's something so much greater that is not just far off in the distance, but is an eternal nature about who God is. The second thing, and the second little kind of foundation I want to put out there is that faith is, is, can never be idle. It always has to be moving. Martin Luther used to say that faith is a lively thing, that it cannot just simply be. That faith is, is moving us to action. It it's, can't be something that we just say we have, but it has to cause our lives to think and speak and act and live differently. The great example of kind of how this played out is probably an overused example in the church, but, but it's a great example, and, and I kind of go back to it sometimes. is the example of a, of a guy by the name of, of Charles Blondin, who was a great tightrope walker back in the 1800s. In fact, in uh, September of 1860, he was the first person to ever tightrope walk Niagara Falls. Right? So 11,000 11, feet across, 160 feet off the ground. He strung a tightrope out there. People from Canada and America, they all came and watched him. And he did it several times. And he was well known for tightrope walking of the Niagara Falls and doing really crazy things. Like he did it on stilts one time. One time he uh, took a sack of potatoes over on his shoulder. Another time he took a whole stove out to the middle and he cooked an omelet out there on a tightrope in the middle of the deal. He was amazing, right? The stories uh, about what he could do on a tightrope were incredible. Well, the one story goes is that he was walking uh, out there and he had a wheelbarrow full of all kinds of stuff and he goes back and forth a few times and he goes over to the end and there's this huge crowd that's watching and he says, do you believe that I can carry someone over in this wheelbarrow, all right, across Niagara Falls? Someone will sit in it. And they were like, yes, we believe, we believe. And he's like, who's coming with me? No one, right? crickets crickets the story goes that nobody got in his wheelbarrow to go over there so he just pushed more stuff um but the picture of faith is one that says it's one thing to say god i believe in you god i I have faith in you it's another thing that it when it begins to cause our life to move martin luther would say that our faith has got to be driven to change who we are simply put it can't be idle i can't just say god i i have faith in you it's got to drive how i live at some point in time, my trust and my faith and my belief in Christ have got to change how I think and how I speak and how I live. Now, those two baselines are going to be really important as we look at this text. It's rooted in this eternal nature and salvation of Christ, and it's got to cause me to live differently. Outside of that, faith is just something. It's just optimism. But with those two pieces, it changes how we're called to live as followers of Christ. So listen to this text. Now, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth, much like the church in Philippi, was facing a lot of persecution. But, but even more than the church was facing persecution, Paul and the apostles were p- facing persecution at this time. They were, they were fearing for their lives, for the kind of the, the gospel message that they were proclaiming. So you've got to kind of read those things into this text. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says this, It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now I think what's lost on us in this text is 
the reality of the lives that these first century Christians were living in. I think that's really lost on us in a lot of ways as we read Scripture. Even as we read the Old Testament, what it was like to live as a Hebrew, what it was like to, to live in that context, to think that way. Well, the same thing with the New Testament church. What, what is it like to live as a believer who's facing deep persecution all the time? None of us, and I say none of us, I would venture to say that none of us have ever really felt that type of persecution. Maybe we've felt some social pressures or pressures from our parents, but most of us would, are never risking our lives for proclaiming the gospel of Christ just in the culture that we live in. So we miss a lot of the power, I think, that's behind some of these texts. But what Paul is, is talking about here really deeply, which he doesn't come out and say, is, is really talking about faith. He's talking about believing and living um, this sort of trust in who God says he is. And he's reminding this church in Corinth that this faith that we have has got to propel us to live differently. So he says this, I believe, therefore, I've spoken. He's actually just quoting Psalm 116 where the psalmist is saying, listen, I've so believed that God is who he says he is that it's causing me to speak about it. His point is, is that my belief is causing me to actually proclaim it. And that's what he's telling the church in Corinth. He's saying, I so believe, as apostles, we so believe that this is true that I can't help speaking about it. We believe and I've spoken with the same spirit of faith right? We also believe and speak because we know that the one that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us. So he's saying, look, the things that we're facing and struggling, here's what we hold on to, right? That faith is first and foremost about a God who says um, who he is and then does exactly that. That God is who he says he is. And it moves us to think and live differently. The big thing I struggle with in my faith is that I am a guy of words. I mean, man, when it boils, I will talk about faith and I will talk about grace and I will talk about trust all the time. But when life gets really crunchy, right, when life gets really hard, man, that is exactly when my faith never seems to come into action. I am so faithful when it's so easy. These Corinthians were living in a time of incredible difficulty. And Paul's reminding them, look, if you really believe that God is who he says he is, then you've got to start living like it. It's got to challenge you to speak and to act and to think differently. As I was thinking about these past couple of weeks, I was thinking about trust and faith, and I was going, God, how does my belief in you really, really change me? I mean, really change me. And I don't know that I have a good answer for that, but I want it to. I want to live in a, in a way that says, God, I, I, I will risk for you because I believe that you're that real. Not that nothing will ever happen to me, but that I believe that you are who you say you are. And so Paul's telling these, these believers, look, that our faith should move us to action. It's a lively thing. It should cause us to say, not just shout from the banks in Niagara Falls, yes, God, I believe you can do things, but God, I believe you can use me to do things. And I believe you can do those things in me. A lot of us believe deeply that God can do things. We just don't believe deeply that he can do them in us. We see him do them in things of people around us, but, but what about me? I mean, I'm not sure because I know that God is big enough to change somebody else's life. I just don't know that he's big enough to change mine. Our faith when combined with this idea of trust, we put it into, right? Pistuepi, when we put it into something, it changes how we live. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, therefore we don't lose heart, right? Think about what they're facing, how easy it would be to be hopeless. You've watched people that you love literally become arrested and killed for this gospel. Therefore we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Life, the understatement of the year, life is hard, right? Understatement of the year. Life is challenging. Life is a beautiful thing, but it's also full of deep, deep challenges. 
Um, as we've seen the past two weeks, life can be full of tragedy. You turn on the news and, and uh, you know, it just seems to be storm after storm, tragedy after tragedy. Um, these things come. You know, you learn that your best friend or your wife or your son has been diagnosed with cancer, with an illness. Um, life is full of deep, deep struggle at times. Um, that's the understatement. But what Paul is saying here is something really powerful to me. And he's saying that there's something that outweighs the things that we face here, right? It doesn't take away from the reality of their hurt. Okay, don't hear me say that. I'm not, I'm not dismissing the pain. But there's something that outweighs the realities of the hurt and the struggle that we face in this world. There's something that's bigger, something that outweighs it, doesn't, doesn't replace it, doesn't make me smile and be like, yippee, I'm really excited, but it outweighs it. Means it's it's heavier, it's bigger, it's it's more grand, right? And Paul says, and he uses that word therefore, which is always a connector, right? So he says, therefore, right? Therefore, we don't lose heart. Well, well, what's the connector? Well, it's connecting us back up to that idea, that fact that this, everything here is for our benefit. That God, the God that raised Jesus from the dead, will also raise us and will be in His presence. This is a great promise of Scripture. That God is eternal. That at the end of the day, at the end of all this, we are guaranteed to be in the presence of Christ, right? So because of that, because of that great promise, we don't lose heart. Now, Paul's not explaining away their persecution. Never, even if you were to read all the chapters before that, he's not like, <clears throat> okay, listen, here's why you're being persecuted. Here's why it's happening. Here's why you lost the people you love. Here's why you're struggling, trying to give an answer for everything. Sometimes as Christians, we feel like we have to have an answer for everything. Well, this is why the storm's coming, why we got this, and why this happened. I didn't do this. And I didn't. Sometimes there are no answers. Sometimes in the middle of it, as Paul says, therefore, because we know there's something bigger, we just don't lose heart. Because it would be really easy to lose heart. Now, maybe for us sitting up here on this side of the city right now, it's maybe not so easy. I mean, maybe it's easier not to lose heart. But maybe for someone that you know <clears throat> who's lost something deeper than what we can imagine, the loss of a child, Maybe losing heart is a very real reality. But Paul says there's something bigger here. We don't lose heart. And then he calls these things they're facing light and momentary. And Paul's not saying that tongue-in-cheek. He's not making light of their struggles, right? But he's saying compared, right, compared to what's to come, these struggles are light and they are momentary. Now think about some of the most difficulties that you've ever faced in, in your life. I mean, the, the most challenging of situations and circumstances, the most deep heartbreak. Paul basically is saying, I, those things aren't light, but in comparison to the glory of God, they're short-lived and they're momentary. They're momentary. Faith is understanding that there's something bigger at play. Not doing away with our pain, but realizing that there's something bigger. And that the struggles that I face are light and momentary. That there is something far greater that outweighs all of it. And then finally, wrap it up very quickly with this. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Paul says, so what do we do in the middle of all this? As followers of Christ, what does it really mean to begin to have faith? We adhere, we fix our eyes, not to what we can see. What we can see is temporary. This stuff will go. It, it will disappear. It will fade. It will fail, always. It will decay and it will rot. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. All the things that are seen are temporary. What's unseen is eternal. What's unseen? Not just eternal nature that begins when we die. 
A lot of times the misnomer is, well, we have to wait till we get off this earth to finally have real life. Truth is, eternal life begins today. Eternal always was. It never wasn't. We are all living an eternal life, right? That's the promise of God, that we live in this abundant life that he's called us to now. So we have this eternal nature, but we fix our eyes on things that are not seen. The sort of redemptive, amazing um, kind of nature of God that is the restorer of all things. And not just looking to a lofty promise that one day if I wait another 70 years, I'll die and stay in the presence of Christ. But that God is able to bring about redemption now. Now. See, having faith in Christ, having faith that was rooted in this idea of salvation, and it moves me to, to a deep belief of action, deep belief, that says, God, I believe your redemptive purpose, purposes start now. And I believe you can bring beauty from ashes. I believe that you can do immeasurably more than I can understand for these light and momentary troubles compared to your glory. They're just nothing. So God, I believe you begin now. All through scripture, we see God being a God of redemption. Look at the people like Peter, people who fail, people who are broken. God uses them, redeems them, restores them. God takes the broken, the things that the world cast aside and he redeems them. And that begins now. It doesn't begin when you die. It begins in the process of redemption now. Fixing our eyes to the things that are unseen means, God, I want to fix my eyes to redemptive nature and work. That when I look around and I think nothing can ever rise out of this mess. The mess of my life, the mess of my sin, the mess of my marriage, the mess of more nothing. Right? Of a broken family. I don't want to believe that. Because I believe that your move is always redemptive. And that God having faith means that I believe you'll bring about your glory because your glory outweighs everything. And as I think about people and as I share this idea of, well, just have faith. For me, I know what they mean, but for me, what the Bible tells me is that it tells me that it's something so much bigger, that I believe that God is a God of restoration. And that God wants to use his people to redeem and restore, right, because of his glory. So just have faith. Not faith that it's all going to be okay and everything will be fine and it'll all work out because chances are it may not. But faith that our God is a redeemer and a restorer and that out of disaster he brings glory and he's always about the glory of who he is. This picture that we have with communion is, is really that sort of similar picture. I, I tell everybody this all the time, but that picture of restoration and redemption is a picture of what we do. I mean, even our communion wear. I mean, this is... These, these are broken beer bottles and Coke bottles from a dump in Guatemala. We've washed them. Don't sweat it. But they're bro- this is a, a family in Guatemala that goes to the dumps and collects trash and then takes them back to their tiny little factory and they blow glass things like this right from that garbage. It's a picture of redemption. This is what God does. God takes the broken and the scattered and the thrown away and he redeems them for his holy purpose. What somebody else said was unfixable, undoable, trash. God redeems and restores. And here we are celebrating one of the great moments of the church with redeemed and restored garbage. When I think about faith, that's really the picture that I think about. God can bring the glorious from nothing. That God's nature is redemptive and God is about restoration. This table is, is that, that picture of that love. That, that God loved you and I in such a deep way that he gave the life of his son that if we trust him, if we believe upon him, the words that we were talking about, that we have faith, saving faith. That we can promise that, that promise that eternal life begins today.
as we prepare to take this meal together and share in these moments, I, I really encourage you as we, as we pray to really ask yourself, God, do I really trust you? Do I really have faith in you? And, and what would it take for me to truly be able to answer those questions with yes? A deep, resounding yes. Let's pray.